Hi, this is Zach. Uh, before we start, I just want to let you know that I added some thoughts on episode four of the rise and fall of Mars Hill at the end of this podcast. It was released after Dave and I recorded, and I think it's easily the best episode so far. Um, so um, don't forget to listen to that part. Um, our previous guests uh, on the Veterans of Culture Wars, uh, Wendy Alsop and Jessica Johnson, are both featured uh, and as well as my old friend, Jeff Bedger. And it means a lot to me that Christianity Today talked to him in particular, as he knows a lot more than most about aspects of the Mars Hill story that matter to me a lot and is a pretty unique person with an interesting perspective on most things. I'm not going to say that I'm responsible for him being on the episode, but I did hang out with him about a week before it came out. And when I asked if he'd been interviewed, he said that they hadn't reached out. But then later that day, he found an old email he'd missed for them and got in touch. So uh, I know that interview portion of the episode was pretty last minute and likely is part of why it came out a little late. Um, all right, well, I'll, I'll have more at the end. Here is our episode. I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy a megachurch, and I'm not really sure what I believe anymore. I'm Dave. I am a theology Bible buff, a movie nerd, an occasional preacher, and I'm still an evangelical. This is Veterans of Culture Wars. Quite the sound effect. <laughs> This is the Veterans of Culture Wars podcast. Believe it or not, we do not have a pile of dead bodies behind our uh, VCW hall. That's because we welcome all kinds of people here to talk about the beliefs, history, culture, personal stories from evangelical Christianity. There is an individual that does have an awful lot of dead bodies behind his bus, as he openly bragged about, and that is one named... Mark Driscoll, and uh, for this episode, Zach... Never heard of him. Could you... Yeah, you has he come up? I, I, I was trying to remember if we've actually talked about him on the podcast before. I've talked about him with my therapist, but on the podcast, hmm. Uh, yeah, well, actually, okay. There are two episodes that are kind of focused on Mark Driscoll. One uh, with Jessica Johnson who wrote one of the formative books on Mars Hill called Biblical Porn. And the other episode was about uh, Driscoll's recent shenanigans at the Trinity Church in Arizona with uh, Warren Throckmorton. So uh, I mean, let's be back. honest, half of the podcast has been about Mars Hill. <laughs> yeah, and that's true. I was going to say, um, <laughs> when we were talking to uh, Sam Thielman of Young Adult Movie Ministry fame last episode, uh, we mentioned Mark Driscoll, Mars Hill. It, it kind of shows up as a character on the show, right? <laughs> a recurring theme that keeps coming back. But um, you guys may have seen, and many of you have probably listened to, a podcast that is being put out by Christianity Today and a guy by the name of Mike Cosper, and it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And today, as we're recording, 
July 14th, 2021. There are three episodes that have been released. I don't think the fourth one is out yet. We just checked before the show tonight. Um, that probably will be coming out very soon. But we thought we would chat about this podcast, what our thoughts about this podcast are, being that Zach attended Mars Hill for nine years and I was just a mere three years. But uh, we thought it'd be good to get into our own musings on the three episodes so far that Christianity Today and Mike Cosper have put out. Uh, Zach, what are your uh, general thoughts about the podcast? Well, it's it's like I, I, I didn't want to listen to it, but I really wanted to listen to it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's when it's not a a you know inspired by real life events thing when it is purporting to be a journalistic long form deep dive into what actually happened who what where when why um it matters to me that the story is told uh accurately and in a way that rings true to my experience like obviously like i don't know every angle i don't know everybody that went there um but what I experienced matters. And I, I, I hope that, that the podcast is able to convey that um, truthfully um, and with nuance. Um, and there's a few things that, that have been of primary concern to me. Um, n- number one, you know, it's called the rise and fall, fall of Mars Hill. Um, but I, I, I really, really want to, make sure that by the end of it we don't look back and say yeah that was the rise and fall of the seattle incarnation of mark driscoll um because mars hill was not just mark (laughs) it was it was thousands of people and you know mark mark was the figurehead but he was only one of three founders there are multiple locations and you know, there was well over a year where Mark didn't preach at the primary location that I attended. Um, you know, eventually it was, you know, like he, they'd film him preaching at one location and, and literally like drive a DVD to the other locations and air and, and, and play that. Um, and then eventually, you know, that, you know, just sending it over the internet or whatever, but you know, the paradox existed for a while without Mark even preaching there. And that was still Mars Hill. And the people there were part of Mars Hill and had, had built that. And um, so, you know, from the outset, the podcast in the first episode, and a lot of what I have to talk about is stuff from the first episode. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, from the outset, it says who killed Mars Hill. Um, like, as if that's a tough question to answer, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, Mark, Mark killed Mars Hill. Like it's really as simple as that. Um, you know, he, he hurt a lot of people with his misogyny, his, his twisting of scripture to fit his messed up point of view, his use of his position to control, belittle and dehumanize people and so on. Um, people came to Mars Hill um, initially in in search of meaning beauty truth and community those were the words that mars hill branded itself with um at the the outset 
yeah. that it, it established itself as a beacon for artists and thinkers of faith, though I, I, I really think Mark never understood art and really resented artists. Um, the same people that came for that eventually left Mars Hill to get away from Mark to protect themselves from him, to flee the abuser and people outside lit the path for those inside to escape for the same reason. Um, so it really, I mean, I, I, when we talk about the way that it wraps up and how it comes back to that thought, I got more to say on it, but it, essentially I think if it's about the rise and fall of Mark, there's no tragedy there. Like an asshole's career uh, didn't work out. Oops. Oh, well. Well, yeah, um, at least in, at least in Seattle, it didn't work out, but he has, yeah, he has you know, since he's moved not on. as, he's not as successful as he was then as far as I can tell, but no, totally. Um, yeah. You know, I have, I, I have thoughts on the who killed Mars Hill thing, which is what the first episode is called. And Mike Cosper, he seems to be setting it up as this almost like the podcast serial or some of these who done it type things. In other words, it's really, it's kind of a gimmick. And I think it's really probably my own, my own brain is like, this is a little distracting, I think, from what you're attempting to do. It's like unnecessary. If you just wanted to kind of do a journalistic deep dive into Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill and what happened, the rise and fall, why why it rose so quickly, what attracted people to the church, and then why it imploded, as Mike Cosper says, almost overnight. You can do that kind of without without that gimmick. But um, I think as far as the question, who killed Mars Hill, I, I find that question really interesting, actually, because yes, it is the story of a narcissistic egomaniac. I, I think it's it's clear that Mark Driscoll is that. Um, and since the church was kind of built around him, it, it collapsed when scandals and everything came to light. And he resigned after allegedly hearing he and his wife Grace heard from the Lord that he was released. Um, but I think it's a more interesting <laughs> question too. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a more interesting question too because the way that Christianity Today is setting this this up, uh, kind of pairing this first episode with the second episode, which is more like a history of megachurches in America, I think they're asking a larger question: Is there something that people were going to a mega megachurch like Mars Hill? to find was that legitimate and was that maybe one of the reasons why the church collapsed as well? Like Driscoll may be the central main reason, obviously, but is there something about what conservative evangelical Christians who were attracted to a church like this, was, was that maybe one of the causes as well? Are they, are they attracted to something in a church that ultimately is not healthy? Yeah, I mean, he's he's got this thing at one point where he says he's talking about you know like how various high profile pastors fall you know have you know very public falling out you know some some moral failing or whatever, and he says uh, when we ask why this happens, shouldn't we ask why we keep doing it? why we seem to like charismatic figures whose character doesn't align with their gifts, giving them platforms and adulation. 
but who is we who is he even talking about like are individual christians who don't pay attention to christian celebrity culture platforming narcissistic abusive pastors somehow uh i mean he's doing this uh this this is a christianity today podcast Mm -hmm. um that is a platform uh is he saying christianity today is at fault because pretty early on he kind of like the first the first woman he talks to is a blogger i i I hadn't heard of her but uh she she blogged at christianity today and uh apparently hermeneutics yeah yeah okay right and and apparently regularly uh covered issues with mars hill and and mark and they butted heads and he didn't care about he didn't he didn't appreciate what she was writing at all bringing that in sort of seems to be functioning as like absolving Christianity today from responsibility in this. Like, well, yeah, you know, evangelical culture is providing this, you know, platform for, for people like this. Um, But here at Christianity today, we were always skeptical of this guy and we always had our, had our issues with this. (laughs) So who's, who's we, who the fuck is we? Yeah. I I didn't care about, about, christian celebrity and and i didn't provide a platform i think a lot of it is a church gets to a large enough point initially it attracted a lot of artists and things and it wasn't just mark it was it was the people that were there brought in other people and those people brought people and it gets big enough and people move to a town or they they you know go to college and and are looking for something you know some sort of change of scenery uh, causes them to need to look to find a new church and they ask around like what's what's where's everybody going oh, okay yeah everybody goes there okay i'll go there then <laughs> like it's it's just kind of a magnetism thing um i do think that yes evangelical culture has a huge problem with awful people uh in charge of it uh and becoming celebrities in that um <laughs> like to a massive massive degree i think that right. um and so but at the same time he's got like glowing quotes you know all the usual stuff he's got ed stetzer saying i saw stunning life change there and you yeah. know he, he talks about well you know there's like i even know pastors that were part of that that aren't christians anymore but countless people countless countless people whose lives were a mess, but were redeemed by the power of the gospel and changed at Mars Hill. And I just think that's total bullshit. If, if you believe God is who he says he is, then God doesn't need Mark or Mars Hill to do what he wants to do and change lives for the better. And this whole thing is basically them saying, oh, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. What I'm saying is, look at, <laughs> look at the baby. You're, you're bathing a rabid possum. That's not a baby stop like drain the tub get rid of it (laughs) cast it out to answer your question i i wonder if he is kind of implicating christianity today in a sense with the with the we comment i mean granted yeah there was the um and i forget her name too i should have written this down but the the hermeneutics blogger that you mentioned and she mentioned on the um who killed mars hill podcast that she was blocked rather early on by Mark Driscoll. Um, but it's it's worth noting, too, that Christianity Today wrote a lot of puff pieces about Mark Driscoll. I just uh, I have one right here 
that was, I think this one was relatively famous because this term was getting thrown around a lot. It's called Young, Restless, and Reformed. And it was published September 22nd, 2006. This was before the bylaws change, which led to the firing of Paul Petrie and Bent Meyer, two Mars Hill pastors that really kind of started a more public awareness of, I would say, who Mark Driscoll is and what, what was happening at Mars Hill Church. And the byline is Calvinism is making a comeback and shaking up the church. And it's talking about Mark Driscoll and John Piper and has quotes from all these guys in here in Christianity Today. So Christianity Today wrote a lot of very positive pieces about Mark Driscoll. And Ed Stetzer writes regularly for Christianity Today. And he, in the interviews, mentioned he was, like you said, he was visiting early on. And um, it, it seemed like he was impressed. I think um, since Christianity it sounds Today... sounds like he still is impressed. <laughs> maybe so. I, I mean, that's well, the way a lot of people are. You know, they're like, Oh, you know, Mark was a jerk and, you know, it's really unfortunate that he wouldn't go through a restoration process and he had to throw a fit and leave town because he could have just gone back to preaching at Mars Hill and this amazing work that God was doing would have continued. There, there is, you know, I think that segment of evangelicalism is, yeah, wishing that it, it may be almost political in a sense because they maybe recognize Mark Driscoll as just an incredible communicator. And I know some people are really sick of hearing that because people are kind of like praising him, but, but he was, I think a lot of people were drawn to the church just because of his communication skills and kind of what he would do and his kind of stand up comedy stick that he would, he would go through and all of that. Um, so I think they were kind of wishing that he would just kind of, oh, just, you know, go sit in your house for a couple months, let other people preach, and then just come back and have Mark Driscoll off to the side and just let him come out and speak and grow the church and have other people managing things. You know, that was maybe the hope. But then again, if people were wanting that situation, it's still not dealing with the massive problem that we have here. And that is that Mark has just incredibly destroyed people's lives that he has spiritually emotionally manipulated and abused people and he hasn't made any kind of effort to meet with these people or to genuinely say that he was wrong in how he behaved at least i'm not aware of any time he's done that well he can't he can't yeah. because he's a narcissist right um and I, I got some quotes about that that are interesting. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, they, they had an interesting, they, they played a tape of a meeting where Paul Tripp, one of the outside advisors who is pretty well respected in evangelical circles, was telling the elders, Mars Hill, Mars Hill deals with its sins or it's done. Yep. And, and that doesn't mean... Mark needs to go through a restorative process and learn how to be nice. No, it means our <laughs> foundational systemic, the way, the way that this church is built and constructed and the way that it approaches people is harmful and it's eating itself. It's not going to last. Um, so I, I was thinking about um, narcissism. Um, cause I was thinking about how small lies turn into big lies. One of the, 
one of the things in the second episode that I really liked uh, was Tony Jones talks about this this repeated boast that Mark would use uh, where he'd say, I read a book a day. And I remember just swallowing that, like, like didn't give it a second thought, like, wow, that's awesome. Like, I love that my pastor is so well read. And he, you know, he'd talk about like getting a custom made, like shelving system in his house to deal with all the books that he's reading. Cause he's just, just this voracious uh, reader. And, and you, you know, you take one step back and like, it's ridiculous. Nobody, <laughs> nobody is reading a book every day and like, taking that in and actually learning from it and growing or like, like he, he wasn't doing that. That's ridiculous. Um, but you believe the small things and, you know, narcissists get joy from lying to people. Um, and they tell small lies because they can, they enjoy getting away with it. And when you prime somebody to believe small lies, they're ready to believe larger lies. So yeah, Oh, God and I, God audibly spoke to Grace and I in separate rooms and told both of us that we didn't do anything wrong. We need to leave Seattle and leave Mars Hill and start a church somewhere else because it's the elders at Mars Hill that are bad and they're setting a trap for us. Right. Like, well, that's the thing. On. That, that is actually what I learned uh, from this first episode podcast because I remember in his statement and in media reports that I remember the line, the trap has been set, but everyone was always asking the question, what does that mean? Like, what would the trap be? And so Tim Smith, who was a loyal uh, friend and pastor, I, I mean, he was one of the hardcore kind of Mark Driscoll devotees while, while Marcel was going and he very was, frustrating degree. Yes. He, right. Yeah. And he was in a, he was in one of the worship bands called Ex Nihilo. Um, Ex Nihilo. He, uh, he was, Nilo, yeah. After he, Genesis. He, he was in charge of the worship department. Oh yeah. R- right. Okay. For a while. And uh, yeah. So he was in that worship band and then eventually he wound up being a campus pastor in Portland. I think when they were opening a, a branch down there. And so he, he wound up down there. So he, he was kind of, being and going, I think, wherever Mark Driscoll wanted him to go in the organization. And he recounts in this first episode that when he sat down in the summer of 2015, when he reached out to Mark Driscoll and he wanted to say to Mark that he was sorry. And and the way what he was saying he was sorry for was he was saying, I have not been a good friend to you. I have not confronted you or pointed out these things that I have seen over the years that have been bad or something. That's my paraphrase of what he said. And then he said, Mark, I guess kind of was sitting there nodding and accepting that. And Mark said, well, I have already forgiven you for what you have done. And Tim in his voice in the episode seemed kind of taken aback. And he was like, well, what, what did I do? And Mark went into, you know, the whole trap thing was he thought that the different campus pastors through this restoration process, quote unquote, we're going to leak all the details out to the media and then take all of these campuses away and basically like kick him out of the church. And so he was paranoid take and, from him. What was right, rightfully take, his, take yeah. his power. Yeah. Take yeah. His uh, yeah. So I've, I found this article in psychology today 
um, about does, do narcissists believe their own lies and uh, some I'll string a few passages together uh, into one quote. So um, narcissists live and die by their own version of the truth. It is the truth if uh, is it the truth if reality has been distorted? A narcissist believes it is. Extreme cognitive distortions and rigid unconscious defense mechanisms change a person's perception of an experience. The narcissist protects a weak ego with deflection, projection, minimization, displacement, denial, and blame. By unconsciously altering reality, the narcissist exonerates himself or herself. It can be nearly impossible to resolve a conflict with a narcissist. He or she stands by a distorted version of reality, which fuels a tendency to bully and mistreat others. When a person offers a more realistic account, the narcissist reacts as if the person is lying, which is confounding. I mean, that's to a T yeah. the experience that Tim was describing in attempting to confront and have an honest discussion with Mark. Mark yeah. created a new reality for himself and totally believed it. I mean, th these are things that those of us who have uh, paid attention to the musings of armchair psychologists about our former president for the last few years have learned about narcissists. Um, but at the same time, many of us that went through Mars Hill saw the rise of Trump uh, in very Driscollian terms. Um, yeah. And that's not, that's not something that we're just saying on our podcast and actually in, you know, I, I found it fascinating in, again, the first episode, John MacArthur, who is the president of master seminary and has the very big megachurch grace community church, I think it's called down in California. He, he is quoted. I think he was on stage or on a panel in 2016 in this episode saying that Mark Driscoll, whom he was critical of, he was critical of Driscoll being brash and crass um, in Blue Like Jazz, Donald Miller's really famous book, Mark Driscoll is called Mark the Cussing Pastor. Um, so he was critical of Driscoll's techniques of kind of his stand-up comic routine and especially critical of some of his sermons, especially the song, Song of Song sermon where Driscoll was very sexually explicit and and MacArthur was not okay with that and John MacArthur says in this panel that evangelicals flocking to Mark Driscoll who had number one sermon downloads and was widely listened to all over the world literally says Mark Driscoll paved the way for evangelicals to embrace Donald Trump John MacArthur is really really conservative and that was a really interesting insight and now, dear listener, I will give you another insight. John MacArthur came around to embracing Trump himself, of course, because of course he did. Yeah, ab absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, we know we know multiple people that complained about the, the crassness, but then compartmentalized it completely as being totally distinct from behavior. Yeah. But yeah, so, yeah, I, um, you know, what else struck me about the first episode was, of course, they played um, Mark Driscoll's. There's a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. And hopefully by God's grace or whatever, there'll be even more by the time that we're done. And I have heard that before. I have read it in print 
before in numerous publications, it, it never ceases to be completely shocking to me. And this time I noticed I mean, he wasn't wrong. Oh yeah. It, he, he's being honest about what he, what he is doing and what he wants to do. And this was after he fired uh, Paul Petrie and, and Bent Meyer. And it was the, like I, the day after the day after, right. And, in, in some kind of, and this wasn't a sermon, it was some kind of training conference. Um, but it's interesting. If you listen to it again, I, I noticed this time his chuckling between, like he was saying, there's the pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and uh, by the time we're done, hopefully <laughs> it'll be a mountain. You know, these pastors, they got off mission. <laughs> now they're unemployed. I mean, it, it, it sounds just socio- sociopathic. It, it sounds yeah. like he is just completely drunk on power. He, he, has, he has drastically affected two faithful members of his church up to that who, who were simply bringing up questions about this is what the bylaws say i'm a lawyer i have concerns kind of about what's going on and then they're fired so people who are trying to just bring up concerns get thrown under the bus and driscoll just laughs at their unemployment the impact to their families to to their kids it it just sounded sociopathic yeah because it probably is Right. I mean, yep. I don't. I don't think he cares about people. I mean, he never wanted to shepherd a flock. He wanted to yell at his flock. Yeah. He, he would. It. You know. He'd say hard words create soft people. Um. You know. He. He, he had the stage arranged for him to be able to go just like from the green room to to the stage and back without ever having to shake anybody's hand or talk to anybody Uh, in Arizona. They reportedly were building him a a passageway to do the same thing, you know, from his office to the stage, a a safe fortified tunnel from his office to, from his, his well-stocked with guns office (laughs) to the stage. Um, He doesn't want to have to talk to people because he doesn't care about people. Yeah. He didn't care about me when I went there. He didn't care about you. Right. Um, he's, and, you know, Mark he's the brand, as he said, he's the, the brand, the logo, the, you know, it's, it's, it's about him. It's not about Jesus. It's about him. And, you know, you know, Cosper, you know, all that other time, you know, like, why do we keep supporting and platforming? You know, one of the biggest scandals that led to his downfall was using tens of thousands of dollars of tax uh, not taxpayer of, of tithe money, money to bulk buy copies of his book to inflate his sense of importance by putting himself on the New York Times bestseller list because being on the list sells more books you know that wasn't platforming that was him taking advantage of of a of a cheat in a rigged system yep um to in, inflate his his importance within uh, within evangelicalism. I mean, he was already yeah, then, big, yes, but but right. like, there's a lot of stuff that he was able to do on his own to platform himself. You know, he got high on the podcast charts when when podcasts were really early. You know, he was ahead on a lot of things technologically because the church yeah. employed or not employed. The church had a lot of volunteers you know, in a tech heavy city of Seattle um, 
who were very ahead of of the trends. Uh, You know, I have a good friend that set up his Twitter account and got multiple accounts for him. And I have the at Mark Driscoll account in my (laughs) possession uh, because he chose to go with at Pastor Mark. Um, You know, we were ahead of things on a lot of that. Uh, Yes. Yeah. Um, that's what Jessica Johnson gets into that a lot in her book, to my understanding. I, I have not read her complete book yet, but just the, the affect and labor part of what she was discussing from an academic perspective of how he got all these people to do this massive amount of work, which who knows how much money um, these graphic designers, sound engineers, video producers, whatever else would have been paid in any other context rather than volunteering their time to uh, basically build this guy's platform. And, and that's this, that's the other sad thing. People really did believe in the mission. You know, there were a lot of people who really believed that good things were happening. The people were getting baptized, people were meeting Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you like to see those things, but then, you know, there's the big, central thing of Mars Hill that Mark Driscoll was just not, uh, should not have been a pastor and was not equipped of a, you know, even a basic fruit of the spirit type situation, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control to be a pastor. Um, He had real issues and whatever spiritual good that someone may claim was, was done there. And, Stories can be nuanced for sure. You have people have to take into account the massive amount of damage, the hurt, the people that have lost their faith, the people that have their marriages broken apart coming out of Mars Hill. There has been so much devastation, and um, I'm hoping in future episodes they get more into that. The people who have just been crushed by this bus Um, because their stories need to be told. I think most of the good that happened at Mars Hill was in spite of Mark, not because of Mark. Yeah. Um, And I'm specifically thinking of the paradox, which was a a music venue and it was a location for the church for a while. Um, The podcast talks to Joel Brown, who um, for a while was like the, main engineer of the recording studio that was at the paradox and he ran uh, sound for a lot of the the shows that happened there um one of my roommates uh, for a while was in a band with joel um i like i like joel a lot and joel said i think a lot of who we were good at reaching were kids like me, uh, people who were a little bit disenfranchised with cultural Christianity and had a little bit of that punk rock spirit. 
And yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's exactly the case. Um, the, the paradox venue, there was this whole, I, I forget if we've gotten into these specifics on the podcast before, but there, there was a, a, a law in place in Seattle that made it exceedingly difficult for concert venues to exist um, for an all ages crowd. They were, you know, 21 and over serving alcohol. Those places had no problem, but if it was all ages, there was these requirements for these incredibly expensive uh, insurance stuff and all this stuff about like, you have to have X amount of like off duty police there. Yeah. But the police were allowed to just like, back out of the agreement to come and, and do security if they felt like it. So they could actually shut a venue down by agreeing to show up to work, to, to, to provide security and then not doing that. And then showing up to say, Oh, you don't have the security that's required by this law. You can't operate. It was crazy. Churches were a loophole. Um, one of the co-founders of Mars Hill, Leaf Moy bought this old, a uh, single screen movie theater um, like from the 1920s or something. And they turned it into a concert venue for kids for, you know, all ages stuff. I was going there for a year before I started going to Mars Hill. It had, it was a huge gathering place for the local, you know, punk independent music underground community, the artistic center of, of, uh, of the university district um, where, where there were so many students from the university of Washington. So that led a lot of people to discover the church. And I, I think that was truly the last altruistic thing that that church did for the city of Seattle. It was a really, really important thing that they provided for Seattle. When, when that law got repealed, it wasn't long before they shut down the venue because it didn't really make money. That's another reason I say it was an altruistic thing. It, it lost money. Um, but the church was bringing in people by, by running it and helping the city. And it was, it was an important thing. Uh, and yeah. l- later on, like, like other things were attempted uh, to, to help out. I, I, but I remember hearing, like one of the campus pastors was, you know, buying and, and uh, giving out blankets to homeless people and Mars Hill central shut that down. They said, we will not allow you to donate blankets to homeless people. Oh boy. Yeah. That's <laughs> gosh. It, so it, it was, just... it was, it was, it was, it was a really important thing. And, and Joel hit the nail on the head with that. And so I'm glad that they're talking to to people like him. Yeah, totally. But you and I both uh, are concerned about who they're not talking to. It wasn't until the third episode that we even heard the voice of a woman who had attended the church. Um, uh, Jen Schmidt, yeah. Yeah. And then also Karen Schaefer. So yeah, know, they got they got two in one episode, which is great. Um, but uh, those voices are super important with such a incredibly male centric church. Mm-hmm. A lot of women were hurt a lot, yeah, uh, a lot more in in ways that we didn't always 
that we that we don't always know about that we didn't see. Yeah. Um, I I'm just for example, there was a certain point where they decided that worship bands could no longer be led by women, and two bands that I know of that were led by women, they were just informed summarily. You're done. You don't you don't get to play anymore. One of those, uh, the 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 woman that led that, her husband was a campus pastor. Like it was not a small potatoes sort of situation. Uh, the other band had uh, a member of that band who has gone on to be a frequent collaborator collaborator with Sufjan Stevens and even played on the last two uh, Taylor Swift albums. Like wow, an incredible musician. Yeah. Um, but because there was a lady, Marcel said, nope, you're done. No more band for you. Yeah. It's absolutely insane. Yeah. So I would love to hear interviews with folks like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know uh, previous uh, Veterans of Culture Wars guest Stephanie Drury um, is not going to be interviewed for it. Yeah, that that is insane to me. I mean, and that's that's probably my biggest criticism of this project, because um, Zach and I have talked about this before. Stephanie Drury was one of the earliest outside, at least vocal critics of Bart Driscoll, as far as really putting herself out there to criticize his messages, his misogyny, what he was doing. She made the cover of Seattle Weekly. Yeah, uh, May 28th, 2014, there were articles written about her. She was in Seattle media regularly as being a critic of Mark Driscoll. I, I don't, I mean, how do you write, how do you do a project of journalism about the fall of Mars Hill without including the voice of Stephanie Drury? There was a, there was a group of people connected to Mars Hill that had a, um, a blackjack card counting operation. And there's a documentary about them called Holy Rollers. <laughs> uh, one of them is Stephanie's husband, David. And, and there was a screening of the movie at Mars Hill. And when they found out that one of the, one of the guys on the team was married to her, they like banned him from, from, attending the screening from, from <laughs> coming to the event from, from being on site at all. Like, so David, they, Drew, knew, they he, knew who she was and they hated her. And Mark still obviously has it in for her. Uh, at some point in, in the last uh, six months, uh, he, you know, she doesn't know exactly who it was that did it, but her, her Twitter account, fake Driscoll uh, got uh, removed uh by you know twitter just informed her that that it's deleted with no um, explanation yeah she she got banned uh presumably mark complained and and got her banned he you know reported her or something for jokes that he didn't like yeah and this was just a parody account and yeah she told jokes and yeah it, it was just it was funny stuff and it was kind of her her means of of criticism of what he was doing and and his messaging and yeah there has been no explanation from twitter i think she's reached out to them and and they just you know it was at fake driscoll and it's no longer her domain but i i think it's just so this isn't even a historical thing this is an ongoing 
exactly. Uh, uh, right. We're, we're still writing tantrum that, that he's <laughs> been, been, been throwing towards Stephanie for years and years. Yes. And yeah. uh, still writing the history. And Mike Cosper apparently initially reached out to her, um, but got his feelings hurt when she responded to a, a tweet of his that was, uh, as I recall, really downplaying uh, the feelings of, of victims of abuse or something. Um, yeah. And uh, he apparently didn't appreciate uh, what she had to say there. And so that ended that discussion uh, as far as, uh, you know, he, he didn't reach out anymore. Yeah. Know, and whether or not your, your feelings are hurt. Yeah. If you're, if you're doing an act of journalism, if you, it's not, I've only met Stephanie like one time when she was on our podcast. So I'm not, I'm not saying this as somebody that's really good friends with her. I, I'm just saying if you're, if you're trying, no one can be purely objective, but if you're trying to do something that's trying to capture what happened in the history of Mars Hill and maybe informing, you know, what's going to be happening and what is happening now at the Trinity church in Arizona. Um, you have to include a major critic of Mark Driscoll. And that was Stephanie jury. There's just no question that she was a huge voice that was out there kind of exposing his messages and what he was doing. It was important to me to, to, to know that, folks connected to the paradox years intimately would be part of this uh specifically i i think the most important uh band in the history of mars hill was a band called team strike force that primarily uh they they were like the band at the paradox um and continued when when mars hill got their big building in ballard and all that um but they they wrote a lot of the songs that became like part of the, like the Mars Hill song canon. Um, the, the hymn book of Mars Hill, if you will. Team Strike Force uh, was around for many years. They, they, um, they had like a, like a article on, in like a big music magazine, like magnet or something. I forget. Um, like they had people come out to Seattle and interview them and, and take their picture in front of the Mars Hill building and all this stuff. Um, but um, yeah, I, I talked to three members of that band. One hadn't heard about the podcast at all. Um, one hadn't heard from the podcast. And the other um, thought he hadn't heard from, but after after we talked, he, he found an email. And it sounds like they're going to be um, setting up an interview. Um, so ho hopefully his voice will be included uh, in the podcast, but yeah, totally. There's, there's definitely, you know, people in mind that I have that, that I, I want to hear show up in order to feel like the story is being told. I think so far with these three episodes, I, I, I do, you know, we have our criticisms, but I, I think there is a lot of good work in there too. I think they are trying to approach it um with a journalism lens you know just dropping the weird gimmick of who killed mars hill but they're they're trying to get a bunch of different voices um i've heard people accusing it of making mark driscoll look good and i don't necessarily 
think that in listening to the three episodes, it makes him look good at all. There are a few comments of people who were talking about how Mark helped them when they were dealing with a difficult situation. And that was more early on in the ministry. Yeah, um, I don't know, with some very tender music under it, like, oh, this, right. Look at this, this, you know, it's the, it's Mark's save the cat moment to put it in screenwriter terms. But, uh, but yeah, there, but there, I, I think mean, there was a book called Save the Cat that talks about like when you're writing a screenplay for a movie, you need to have a moment that makes the audience identify and care for your main character. And so something like having right. them see a cat in a tree and go get it just shows you oh this this is somebody that cares about the little guys and all that and and that felt like the podcast's save the cat moment for the central figure of of the of the show to me um but it, i don't know it, it was nice story it was, it's good to remember that like yeah he's he's a human being and he's done things to to care for people but it's also communicating why why people were drawn to the church and maybe became committed as well because they, they got those, those acts were, were done by Mark. Right. So they're, they're trying to get the full explanation. I think the vast majority of it does not portray him in a good light. I mean, the, the main intro music has him screaming his, uh, you know, how dare you, what the hell are you doing or whatever it is. So, I mean, it, yeah, I, but, I think the I mean, vast they, majority they, of it they is. pulled some punches for sure. I mean, there, there's a clip of him speaking at a conference and, you know, he's, he's the big theme of it is like, Oh, you're, you know, everybody thinks God is this, you know, sky fairy. And, you know, we need the church to like be more like committed to doctrine and, you know, God's not like that. And, um, and some, some folks, challenge him on some stuff and, and but he's he's being harsh on purpose and cosper narrates it saying that he uses a variety of harsh slurs and things um which he notes he is not going to put in there there and i'm like why <laughs> like why because it's why? christianity today yeah i mean they they bleep out some words otherwise but you still know what was said like why not show what the guy actually said? Because most people got a sanitized version of him. That was a big revelation of, of the William Wallace, the two, uh, the second um, uh, publication of uh, the, the forum post from back in the day. It, when he first public when he, when he first wrote those, it was easy to dismiss those. Ah, you know, Mark, you're, you know, pretending you're Chuck Polinek or whatever. Um, but, reading reading those same words years later after having heard mark preach you you realize that he was just he had just taken the william wallace the second uh thoughts and taken that character and and figured out a more palatable more um uh publicly a, a more a more acceptable form to present those same same ideas, the character of Pastor Mark is the same as William Wallace II, just with some of the harsh language taken out. So I wish that um, that Christianity Today would include the harsh language because that's that's that shows more of Mark's. Heart. It's his persona, yeah, it's who he is. And and I'm worried about punches being pulled in general. Uh, so the first episode ends. 
using a song by Pedro the Lion called Slow and Steady Wins the Race. I think it's the very first song on on their the second album, um, which the the whole album is is a a um a concept album about uh two brothers, one of whom is a a aspiring politician who sort of sees his success in life as proof of his his own uh morality and righteousness and by the uh, at the same time sees his brother's moral failings as as proof of of his of his personal weakness and unfitness and all that his, his brother has like issues with alcoholism and stuff mm-hmm. and um the last verse of the song so so they used basically the entire song uh at the end of the podcast but they f- they faded it out before the last line and i knew they were going to just in my <laughs> gut when i was listening to them like oh they're letting the, the whole thing is playing through oh but they're they're not going to use the last line are they you see the was- last line it's like dave bazan the songwriter has spent the whole song kind of quietly slipping the knife in mm-hmm. and he gets to twist it on the last line and i'll and i'll I'll play. It's a great I'll song. Play, I'll play what you hear in the episode of the last uh, verse, and then how it changes when you hear that last line. faded out right there and that's like i mean we know from the rest of the album contextually and and the beginning of the song that that this is is somebody who is not thinking of others very much it is very self-focused and so yeah they're they're because they are a self-professed christian they're seeing that this is what heaven is going to be like for them and it's no different than what christians see in the bible and read and think about themselves and what it's going to be like um so at this point we can be like i mean i guess that's what the bible says but you're you're a little you're a little bit you're thinking a bit too highly of yourself there man uh, and just like we could be listening to the podcast and be thinking mark you're 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 thinking too highly of yourself um, you've got some issues mark you're not perfect um are you are you are you sure there's going to be as many diamonds on that crown as you think there are but then the last line which we don't hear on the podcast i won't ever lock my doors i will trust my neighbors confident that they deserve to be there in heaven 
that's the larger indictment, right? <laughs> that's that's when the song pulls your perspective away from just the one figure at the center of the song and on the whole cultural understanding of what it means to be a Christian and who goes to heaven and why. I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard for me to articulate, especially because I don't hold to the theology of this so much anymore, but I don't think Dave really did as much when he was writing this. Um, but at any rate, it's, it, it turns it on the broader culture. It's the, it's the part where Christianity today could, could be seeing themselves, I guess. Yeah. Interesting. And it's, and instead they, they, they keep it as, yeah, Mark's, Mark's the deluded guy that, that thinks that he's, got a crown of diamonds and that he ran the weight, the race. Well, which brings me to a question for you. And maybe we can talk about this as we close this episode. There is a question as you're listening to these three episodes of the rise and fall of Mars Hill is Mark Driscoll sincere, but a delusional narcissist, or is he just, a very smart and clever con man. And I know in previous episodes you have at least referred to him. And and sometimes you may have been kind of joking that, Oh, you know, he moved on from Seattle to set up another grift somewhere else. Is he a grifter? Is he a delusional narcissist? Is it a combination of the two? What do you think? Um, Yeah, I I think he's a con man. Um, I think he's a grifter. Um, and that's ultimately why I think a lot of people shouldn't be lumped in as the, you know, the, you know, how did we give him all this? You know, there's no, there's no shame in, in being conned by a con man. He's good at it. Um, you learn from it and, and you move on and, and hopefully don't let that happen again. Hopefully don't give more money to somebody like him. But I think I think he gave up the game a lot um, in in talking about his origin story when when he would talk about in in high school getting an impromptu invite to attend a competitive debate team event when he wasn't on the debate team uh, and he went and he won the whole thing um, without any preparation. Uh, just by attacking his opponent and and being generally like funny and uh, just bullshitting. (laughs) And I think for all the talk that we hear about, Oh, Mark is this incredible communicator. Um, You know, he was truly gifted. Like what is he communicating and how is that a gift? I, I, I think that his true gift is not in X, you know, um, exegeting scripture i think his gift is extemporaneous long-form bullshit (laughs) i mean he stopped prepping for sermons after a few years and he'd just walk up on stage knowing the 
two verses he was going to talk about and he'd be loaded up with anecdotes and jokes and he'd just wing it for an hour. That was his gift. That was what he's really good at. And, you know, he could figure out how to wrap it in some sort of theology. But that's what he was doing. Yeah. And it seems that Tony Jones has that same opinion. Uh, when he he's interviewed in the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, I listened to another podcast, uh, Pastors with No Answers, where he was interviewed. And he he cites several examples of even Driscoll kind of stealing his ideas and his stuff, at least according to him. Where and and he also notes here here's the big key for me because I agree with you. I think that Mark may have started out as someone who was sincere, very young, and maybe he was committed to Christianity and committed to his church. I think over time, as the platform grew as more and more money started coming in and could be made, I, I think it, it just became a grift. And I think the, the telltale sign, and again, this is a, a good note from Tony Jones, who is actually a problematic figure in and of himself, but I'm just giving him credit for this good note, um, that Driscoll just seems to change very, very quickly, even his theology, when it is no longer convenient. And, Which is another lie of his because he would claim at times that that his theology hadn't changed from the moment he became a Christian. Yeah, it, it absolutely has. <laughs> and our, our mutual friend, uh, Wenatchee the Hatchet, has, has very exhaustively chronicled this. And especially recently, when he, uh, the recent books that he has written, which I have not read and I do not plan to read. But I never read a single one of his books. Right, yeah where he's he's almost more you know pentecostal or charismatic sounding spirit-filled jesus and win your war and um works and a lot did, better in arizona than it would have yeah, in seattle exactly and he said that uh calvinism is a you know he's on record as saying calvinism is a philosophy for uh boys with daddy issues or something like that and he thinks the five points of calvinism are ridiculous i mean he, he said this literally in an interview after all of this time at Mars Hill, probably 10 years of being, uh, having puff pieces written about him in Christianity today and being young, restless, and reformed, reformed meaning Calvinism. After literally being a part of this movement, he, he quickly just disavows it to go to something else. And that is the sign of a con man because he is simply, it's a marketplace to him. He is going to what he thinks people want to hear and he is bringing that message and people are giving him money and he's bringing people in. And the fact that he is trying to control people and, and to break up families as he's doing right now in Scottsdale, Arizona, according to multiple reports now, um, it, like you said, it's a grift. It's just the another people that get to know him best. They don't, they don't tell you, ah, oh, he's incredibly wise. I, I mean, the things that I learned from him, you know, when it's just one-on-one -on -one and, and the insight that he had into problems with my life, like, you, no, that's not what you hear. You hear he's an asshole. That is, that is like <laughs> the overwhelming major defining quality of his. And I think it's Tony Jones that the, they use a quote uh, at the beginning of the first episode that I think is Tony Jones, but I, 
it's not um they, they don't give the context at the time it's just a, a grouping of voices saying things and and he says D- driscoll got fired for being an asshole yeah and that's that's pretty much verbatim from what i was told not long after it happened by a longtime driscoll associate somebody who worked very closely with him traveled with him for years um I think like shared hotel rooms with him when they traveled like really close. And, and I remember him telling me, yeah, the bottom line is all of this could have been avoided. If Mark wasn't an asshole, I want to hear more about the women from Mars Hill. I want to hear from them more. Um, For a lot, for a lot of white dudes, the story of Mars Hill was the rise and fall of a loud manly man church. For a lot of women, it was the rise and fall of a church built to hate them, to diminish them, to say that men and women are equal, to say that, but at the same time have a pastor on stage constantly belittling prominent female pastors and writers and men who were too feminine yes. or, or couldn't properly control their wives. Yep, all like, true. They'd say one thing. They'd say we care about women, and with every action, they'd show they didn't. Sermon after sermon, illustrate. You know, Mark had so many a- a- anecdotes about oh, this crazy pastor lady that I had to have a meeting with about this or that. Like everything was communicating his distrust of any woman that wasn't uh, wanting to be controlled by her husband. Yeah, and so at the end of of the first episode, at the end of the thesis of the whole thing, really, uh, Mike says, "So who killed Mars Hill? Well, you have to assign some of the blame to the guy at the center of it. But we're not just talking about the collapse of an individual's ministry; we're talking about the end of Mars Hill itself. Yes, <laughs> of course, uh, this shouldn't be about." the collapse of an individual's ministry because there, there is, I, I said it before, there's, there's no tragedy in an asshole losing his power and platform and ability to hurt people. And yes, other people enabled him and other people pointed out that he hurt people and encouraged people to leave. I say at the beginning every week, I helped destroy a megachurch. And I mean that, I mean, I think that was helping that it was ultimately a good thing for Mars Hill to cease to exist as a vehicle for Mark's ego and harmful theology. But he's the one who killed it. It was, it was death by a thousand self-inflicted cuts. It was like Julius Caesar. If Caesar was an asshole who spent 15 years handing out knives to people he didn't like (laughs) the tragedy is not that a powerful ministry is gone. If you believe what you say about God, he'll change people's lives and hearts, whatever, uh, however he wants, and he doesn't need Mark to do it for him. The tragedy, the only tragedy, is the shattered lives of the people who gathered around meaning, beauty, truth, and community, but instead got years of Mark's ego and abuse until finally he was gone. Hi, this is Zach. I wanted to share some thoughts on episode four after having listened to it a couple times, uh, Dave and I had intended to talk about it together, but it came out later in the week than normal, so we weren't able to hear it before recording this episode. A couple things on that. Um, 
one, a friend told me he sent some of the audio used uh, in the in this episode just a few days before the episode came out. And two, uh, as I said at the beginning, I hung out with Jeff Betger about a week before this came out. Um, and Jeff is featured several times in the episode, but he hadn't been interviewed yet. When I saw him, uh, I actually asked if they'd reached out to him because to me, he's absolutely vital to understanding the story and community of artists and musicians that were drawn to Mars Hill in the early days. Uh, at Mars Hill, he played in the band Team Strike Force, which I happen to think is the most important band in the history of Mars Hill. And he was in charge of booking shows at the Paradox, all ages music venue that was owned by Mars Hill and used for Sunday services. Outside of Mars Hill, he played in the band's 90 Pound Wuss, Wrath the Dead Monkeys, and Suffering and Hideous Thieves. He's a good friend, and his perspective means a lot to me. So I am really, really glad to hear him tell part of the story. Uh, he's one of those few people whose inclusion means I have more hope that Mike Cosper will tell the story right or close enough to write. Um, the episode hit on a few things that really resonated with me. Um, making the connection between the church and fight club was big. Uh, we'd all seen the movie, read the book. I, I, I even went to like an author reading of his next book uh, in like 2000 or 2001, like God is autograph on the book or something um fight club was regularly referenced at mars hill and i've said before that mark's william wallace the second rants were clearly inspired by fight club and one thing the episode didn't note uh there were actual physical fight club events at mars hill at the time um you know they they weren't just uh theological sparring matches or i forget how mike phrases it but um yeah, I know, I know several people who attended them and got hurt. <laughs> uh, I've never been in a fight, don't intend to get one, uh, so I did not attend, but they were pretty common knowledge then. Uh, one friend recently uh, was talking about it. This, uh, he, as, as he recalls, there were four rules of the Mars Hill Fight Club. Number one, the fight was stopped if a guy seemed boastful and arrogant. Number two, the fight was stopped if a fighter was acting cowardly. Number three, no intentional uh, crotch shots. And number four, the fight's over if it's obviously one fighter dominated or one can't get off the ground. Uh, Mike says, uh, quote, the common thread between Fight Club and Mars Hill was a deep satisfaction with the status quo, but where Tyler Durden wanted you to embrace nihilism and risk and pain to feel alive, Driscoll challenged men to get good jobs, marry young, buy a house, and have lots of kids. That was definitely my plan. Uh, before I found a wife, I bought a house at 20 years old while I was making like 300 bucks a month and had no savings because banks were approving super risky mortgages all the time before the uh, 2008 collapse. Um, Mike does a good job of showing why many young men were drawn to Mark's teaching. I wanted to feel like I could be serious about my future, take responsibility and plan my legacy. Mike brings up the William Wallace stuff, but he doesn't quote for it from it. And I wish that he had, um, he says, you know, it's awful and indefensible, but I don't think he does enough to connect the ideas in the William Wallace post to the ideas about women that Mark actually has. Uh, yes, the people of Mars Hill were able to dismiss the posts when they first happened, 
as a Tyler Durden-esque hyperbolic agent of chaos. I mean, it wasn't a big shock when we found out it was Mark that had written them. Um, but when we reread them years later, um, after years and years of Mark's sermons, we saw that William Wallace II is how Mark really thinks, that he presented sanitized versions of the same ideas from the pulpit ever since. Pastor Mark is a character, just like William Wallace II is a character. One is purposefully over the top and extreme to make the other seem normal by comparison, but it isn't. Mark shifted the Overton window with William Wallace II, and we were able to accept that when he preached because even though he could be offensive and homophobic and misogynist at times, at least he wasn't acting like William Wallace II, and we could compartmentalize and dismiss that as, oh, it's just crazy Uncle Mark showing up again. So listening to this episode, uh, it, it, it helped me forgive myself a little bit for finding Mark's ideas attractive. Like many other 18-year-olds, I was looking for purpose and a way to feel special and capable of achieving something great. And that's what he was selling. I, I just, I wish it didn't take so long for me to see how much that intensely male-focused culture was actively ignoring, minimizing, and hurting women. There's a lot of other things I could talk about, but I'll leave it there. I think the rise and fall of Mars Hill has gotten better each week as more voices are included, more stories told. I hope to hear more stories from the people hurt by Mars Hill and fewer stories from people who benefited from that system. And ultimately, in the long run, when the podcast is over, I hope to hear a lot less from Mark Driscoll. Thanks, you guys. This has been another episode of Veterans of Culture Wars. Thank you so much for listening to us. Uh, if you would, please leave a rating and a review wherever you like to listen to podcasts as that helps others find our show. You can uh, tweet at us on Twitter. Zach is at Muzak, M-U-Z-A-C-H. I am at Dave J. Lester. And we have a show pod at BCW Pod. Uh, you can look up Zach's art and his music, muzak.bandcamp.com. And you can look at my occasional writing and blog posts on dangerousHope.wordpress.com. Music and logo for the show done by Zach. Thanks for coming down to the VCW. Um, as always, podcast is free, but you still need to tithe 10%. And uh, 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 tweet at us dying to have us set up a patreon if you just have to figure out how to send us money <laughs> so we can so we can fix that roof um right. I, don't, I don't think i don't think we'll do that but um yeah so we can uh we can make your book next book a new york times bestseller yeah yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna take all those patreons and bulk buy all of my records that are sitting in boxes <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Bye, everybody.